Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 13, Alternative History. Chris, how's it going? It's definitely going, you know. It's, uh, like I said at the end of the last episode, it's it's history as live TV. Yeah, we're, we're, it's reactive at this point, right? Yeah, the History Channel is what you see when you look out the window now, you know. Right, less, uh, less World War II footage, less American pickers. <laughs> And more, as it turns out, statues and icons being pulled down. I'm, I know you're very disturbed by this, right? You, you can't believe that anybody would deface a Winston Churchill statue. <laughs> they have been tumbling down like bowling pins, my friend. Yeah, and uh, people famous and, and obscure alike, uh, historical figures, have really come in for it. As far as I can tell, I've, cate- I've categorized them. Uh, into three basic groupings, and and you can add to it if you wish, but slave traders, imperialists, and confederates seem to be the most popular targets. And and, and there is some uh, overlap between those categories, by the way. <laughs> some confederate imperialist slaveholders, right? The trifecta, and, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where, where does Gandhi fit into that? You hear about the, the, I think it was in Manchester, there was a petition to take down a Gandhi statue. Yeah, now you sent me a, a piece on that. I wasn't aware of that. What'd you make of that? It's, I mean, the thing is, like, it, it did get some attention, but it's it, a little overblown. I think the petition had 5,000 signatures in a city of, I don't know how big Manchester is, more than 5,000, certainly. Um, so, but it, but it does suggest that it's been fun watching these, as you said, Confederates and slaveholders and imperialists get pulled down. But is, is there a limit in your mind to, like, is there a figure that you would legitimately be upset if if their if they were defaced if their statue was defaced or got pulled down good question uh maybe the bob's big boy statue the hamburger statue <laughs> that's good yeah uh because all, all he's ever done is given us you know crappy fast food so i i i think we can leave him alone but uh no i mean it's a great question i i think that that when we start regarding these things as as fixed and immutable, that's when we get into trouble. And and I would almost suggest that just as Jefferson once famously said that the tree of liberty has to be watered from time to time with the blood of tyrants, you know, we got to yank statues down every so often just so we don't uh, end up, you know, deifying these really sort of awful facets of of our history you know deifying in the sense that we turn them into you know unapproachable gods or something that can't be altered yeah nobody's going going ahead with my plan to pull down columbus statues and and raise up barry bond statues though (laughs) i can't get any traction with that well you know the thing about the columbus statues is so interesting i mean you know for years i lived in roseville california and that's a that's a little uh, town old railroad town now suburb of, of sacramento and and right there in front of the, the the post office on Main Street in Roseville was a statue of Christopher Columbus. And so, you know, my, my question for my students is, you know, what the hell is Columbus doing in, 
in Roseville, California. It's pretty bizarre. Yeah, he's he's such a un, I mean, he's a very interesting figure, right? Just as a historical personage and as somebody who's who had this big impact unintentionally, by the way. But he's such a failure in so many ways, such a weird person to want to, um, you know, create idols to basically, especially considering the United States. He has nothing to do with the United States, nothing to do with the, the settlement of North America. Right. He's uh, it, it's a very bizarre thing. I, I You know, something that I think is is really uh, significant with Columbus is that he becomes kind of an Italian-American icon as well. Exactly. And so the erection of those statues is associated with Italian Italian migration. But mm. even for, you know, I will say to our Italian-American listeners, there's a lot, put up a statue of Garibaldi or something like that, right? There's better, <laughs> there's better uh, Italian icons than, than Columbus, who there's some doubt whether he was actually Italian in the first place. But uh, yeah, that that's one that, let's just take all those down. Doesn't need to be any arguments, doesn't need to be any debate. Get rid of them. Yeah, and you know, that turns out to be true, Josh, for, for many of these uh, statued figures. That is, uh, just as the Columbus statues tended to be, as you say, uh, you know, result of a, a kind of Italian-American heritage effort, you know, so too to a lot of these others. Uh, that is to say they're put up after the fact by people who are now attempting to create some kind of heritage. You know, we know that was true with a lot of those Confederate statues, right? They were put up in the 20th century, uh, up through the middle decades of the 20th century by people who were not alive at the time of the Civil War and what have you, but who in the age of Jim Crow and racial segregation were still attempting to enforce a kind of cultural heritage statement about white people in the South. And, you know, you, you couldn't do better than throwing up a gigantic ginormous statue of Jefferson Davis, you know, to peer down at you if you're a person of color, for example, as you uh, went about your rounds to remind you that according to this, uh, you know, this white majority, you were still deemed somehow to be under the gaze of Southern history and, and white supremacy. Yeah, the, the thing that's so frustrating is that for the, the people who are wringing their hands over these statues being taken down. They see the presence of those statues as this kind of neutral thing, right? And then the people tearing down the statues engage in this politicizing act of turning these these icons into, um, you know, these these figures to be to be torn down. But the reality is putting the statues up was a political act, right? Taking public spaces and placing, again, icons to these these individuals is an extremely political act and it's meant to have particular meaning, right? You don't put those statues up if you don't want people to see those figures in particular ways. So you can kind of reverse the story, which is that it's not neutral to put the statues up and political to take them down. It's very political to put them up and it's depoliticizing those spaces when we tear them down. All right, let's just get rid of them all. We don't need statues to these individuals in our public spaces because you know ultimately any individual, is, as you know, we talked about Gandhi a second ago, any individual is gonna have his ugly side and there's always gonna be a way to find those, those ugly sides uh, maybe we should just, you know, take the lesson from Islamic art, right? Don't don't uh, have any human images. We'll just do geometric shapes, <laughs> a bunch of geometric statues. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, on the one hand, I see statues as a sort of a, you know, more artistically pretentious and grandiose version of a bumper sticker. You know, in other words, a way to advertise some particular contemporary viewpoint about the past that typically, you know, wants to uh, affirm uh, some heritage claim or some uh, identity claim. Well, for example, take that famous Southerner, Donald Trump. 
who yeah. uh, has been quite vocal about these Confederate statues, almost, uh, you know, the, the great narcissist has nearly gotten uh, teary, it seems. Uh, I have a Trump quote here. Sad to see the history and culture of our great country being ripped apart with the mu- the removal of our beautiful statues and monuments, uh, Trump said in a series of tweets referring to the Confederate statues. You can't change history, but you can learn from it. And uh, I wasn't yes. sure, yeah, what he thought maybe we were going to be learning uh, from those statues, maybe something about the dangers of racism or, or racial caste. I'm not, I'm not sure, but... You know, I, I had to think about this because I know, you know, that Donald, uh, the Donald likes to play to his base, if nothing you know, else, consistently. He's also shown us, right, that he's less than a stellar student of, of history. Is that fair to say? Well, I, I thought so until you read that quote. I, I think that's going <laughs> up on our, our, our wall of fame and our website, right? You got to reserve a spot for that. Well, you know who I went to to help me figure all this out? And I've been bombarding you with his, uh, you know, uh, excerpts uh, from reading his history uh, is the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. None other than Nietzsche, who wrote a piece called The Use and Abuse of History in the 19th Century. Uh, Put it, I think, in terms that helps us understand the Donald and, um, you know, statue lovers in in general. Uh, Nietzsche's idea, of course, was that there were, you know, three basic ways that people like to look at the past. And one of them is what he called the monumental view of history. And I think it would include folks like your friend, you know, maybe John Meacham, who point to great figures from the past as monuments to revere, usually the great men of the past. Uh, I don't know that we've seen any female statues torn down. They've they've all been uh, this sort of toxic masculine statue. But uh, Nietzsche's idea was that, you know, greatness for these people who see history this way, greatness resides in the past. And it's really a kind of a, a lazy form of historical analysis. And so it's perfect for someone like Donald Trump, who doesn't want to have to actually read a book about history, is that you get this sort of touchstone of greatness uh, from the past that's meant to convey some lesson or reverence for us living you know, in, in the future. And, and Nietzsche himself, look, was living in an age of hyper-German patriotism, right? You know, the age of, of, of Bismarck and the creation of the German nation. And so he had that stuff going all around him, right? You know, these sort of great figures from Germany's history were being lauded. And, uh, you know, what Nietzsche said, look, if you give into that temptation, that kind of Trumpian, you know, embrace of history as a statue, it's not only incredibly lazy, but it's all also quite cynical because it says, you know, in effect that all the great things that have happened have already happened. And uh, as he put it, Nietzsche put it in his inimitable fashion, he said, let the dead bury the living, if that's the case. Uh, let those, <laughs> you know, let those statues bury us. So I really like what you said about, you know, it's, it's the taking of uh, those statues down that really represents the stronger assessment of history. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what we're going to be talking about this episode is is how we've seen the past, these alternative spaces, these, these spaces outside the mainstream of history. And we want to kind of see how those, those alternative spaces, uh, political spaces, social spaces, what we can see develop in those places as opposed to that, these kind of dominant narratives of history. And there's one particular place right now which is offering us a, a really nice example of that, and that's in Seattle. 
Yeah, what's happening up there, you know, you and I have been talking about it, of course, and, it, and in a way it kind of inspired this episode of, of alternative history, is that, um, you know, a, a group of locals uh, who have been uh, participating in, in the, uh, you know, the protests ever since the killing of, of George Floyd, uh, and part of this, uh, you know, sort of larger movement to defund police or to do away with traditional kinds of policing, et cetera. And, and let us note, by the way, Josh, that since our last episode premiered, there have been now two more killings of African-American uh, men uh, just in a short span of time uh, since we, that episode premiered uh, under uh, one for sure under, uh, you know, po the policing power, the other, uh, the s circumstances I don't, uh, at the time of this broadcast, I'm not sure I've been fully vetted, but, uh, and so that's that larger, uh, eye toward not only reforming how policing is done or significantly, uh, diminishing it, but also then claiming back the urban spaces that the police typically have themselves, laid claim to, that is, urban neighborhoods and such that have fallen under, uh, as we saw in the last episode with, with Oakland and the Black Panthers, that have fallen under those policing prerogatives. Yeah, and in, in this case, it's a very direct example of that because the police literally just abandoned their precinct house um, in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. They just left it one day, and they, they, I was just reading an article about it. Nobody really is taking credit or blame for that. Nobody knows who made the decision. But one day they just uh, they shredded a bunch of their papers and they just abandoned the building. And so that precinct house has become kind of the center of uh, this autonomous zone, Capitol Hill autonomous zone, as it was called for a while. And I think it's now become Capitol Hill. Uh, there's another acronym for it that's CHOP, and I can't remember what the O and the P stand for. Uh, but it's it's literally centered around this, this precinct house that was abandoned by the police, who literally, I think it was the day before, had been firing tear gas and uh, rubber bullets and and uh, and mace into the crowd uh, and then the next day they literally just left the neighborhood i don't know maybe the idea was that without their their presence there th there would be chaos and anarchy but instead it's really it seems to have been a very positive uh, uh experiment that's been about nine days uh they've invited in uh, homeless populations who are now uh, able to stay there and get services uh they're policing themselves there's um you know these uh, urban urban farms have been set up it's this really amazing example of this alternative space where, um, in fact, society did not just break down when, when the authority left. It seems rather to be uh, to be thriving. Yeah, it's quite inspiring. I know both you and I thought immediately of the Paris Commune of, from 1870, right? When, when the, uh, you know, the sort of the Second Empire was failing in France and, and you had this uh, uprising in the city of Paris and a uh, a similar sort of self-governing collective established itself over the city. And for, I forget how many months, um, more or less uh, governed itself, you know, as I say, as a kind of self-governing uh, collective. And, and so it really got us thinking about where else in history we might find these examples of, you know, populations of people who have contested you know, the authority of their day and carved out these these sort of alternative spaces, these autonomous spaces and proclaimed the right to self-govern. And I think we've come up with some, haven't we? Yeah, I think so. And it's it's something that I think what we're going to see is that 
part of these part of these alternative spaces are they exist within some larger society, right? Like in the example of this uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, and then in other cases, these societies are alternative in the sense that they were there and they just never got talked about. Uh, they were they were alternative methods or means of of society that just have been largely left out of the historical record or at least not talked about very often when people talk about history. And, and in their place, what we've seen is these dominant narratives of quote unquote civilization uh, and, and politics that don't really allow much room for any alternatives. So we wanna kind of pull, pull out both those examples, um, the ones that don't get talked about and then the ones that exist kind of on the margins of these larger societies, but offer us many lessons for, for alternatives. start here by just reading a description of a society. Quote, the inhabitants of these marshes live in what are called turtlebacks, small patches of slightly higher ground, often no more than a meter or so above the high water mark. From these turtlebacks, inhabitants exploited virtually all the wetland resources within reach, reeds and sedges for building and food, a great variety of edible plants, tortoises, fish, mollusks, crustaceans, birds, waterfowl, small mammals and migrating gazelles, that provided a major source of protein. The combination of rich alluvial soils with an estuary of two great rivers teeming with nutrients, dead and alive, made for an exceptionally rich riparian life that in turn attracted huge numbers of fish, turtles, birds, and mammals, not to mention humans, preying on creatures lower on the food chain. In the warm, wet conditions that prevailed in the 7th and 6th millennia, uh, millennia BC, wild subsistence resources were diverse, abundant, stable, and resilient virtually ideal for a hunter-gatherer pastoralist. The first fixed villages in the southern alluvium were not merely in a productive wetland zone. They are located in, at the seam of several different ecological zones, allowing villagers to harvest from all of them and to buffer themselves from the risk of exclusive dependence on any one. End quote. Sounds pretty terrible, right? It sounds like you found an alternative space that worked. Yeah, real dystopia. <laughs> uh, they were well fed <laughs> yeah a well-fed dystopia where was this edenic environment of abundance stability and ease um it's in a place that you might not expect it is in what's now southern iraq uh, the region also referred to as lower mesopotamia in our you know traditional histories of civilization this is not the picture we usually get of mesopotamia from traditional textbook accounts mesopotamia shows up in those accounts as the birthplace of civilization, the first places, place where we see cities and states and writing and all these things we associate with later civilizations and other contemporary civilizations. In those accounts, Mesopotamia generally shows up as a harsh landscape of unpredictable storms, floods, sandstorms, and violence. Out of this, early states formed based on labor-intensive irrigation that allowed the desert to bloom with wheat and barley. So we have these two very different accounts, the traditional civilizational account that I just described, and then this other account of really this exact same region, uh, but a very different kind of society, economy, and way of life being present. So why do we hear so much about the latter account of Mesopotamia, this harsh landscape of sand and storms and violence, as opposed to what I call the Edenic version that I started with? Why don't we hear about wetland foraging and horticulture based around sedentary villages as the true beginnings of complex society. 
And I think the answer to this question really goes back to the old adage that the winners write history. As you might guess, based on, I think, my history with this show, I'm not fully in agreement with that old adage. Um, but I think there, there's some parts of it that are correct, while other parts of it are wrong. I think the idea is wrong in some ways, uh, because every state that's ever existed up to now has at some point uh, failed, right? We are the successor of all these failed states across millennia of history. And yet the stories of those failed civilizations are still told triumphantly. They lost, but their stories still get told in a particular way. So as an example, the Western Roman Empire was eventually destroyed and its lands occupied by a variety of Germanic groups. Yet there's not many, can, I don't know if you can think of any pro-Goth versions of this history. Do we get that, that, that very often? No, I, w- I would say that that has been a underserved viewpoint. Yes, the Goths are an underserved community. Um, and to take it even further, one of these, these Germanic groups are called the Vandals, right? And their very name ends up being forever associated with wanton destruction of property, right? Vandalism. So not only did the winners in this, the Vandals and the Goths and all these other groups who destroyed the Roman Empire, not have their stories told in triumphal ways, but they become associated with, with destruction and violence and decay and all these things that stand in contrast to the glory of the Roman Empire. Right? So clearly, it's not as simple as saying the winners write history. Now, where that notion is somewhat correct, I think, is more in the Walter Benjamin version of it. We haven't mentioned our, our patron saint in a while, so I felt like I had to bring him in. He is on our t-shirts, which are now available in our tea public store, by the way. I don't know if this is a good place for a plug, but uh, seems appropriate. <laughs> and uh, old Wally Benjamin has said, and I think we might have quoted this before, but uh, those who currently rule are the heirs of all those who have ever been victorious. So when we say the winners write history, it's not really specific winners. Our uh, esteemed attorney general, and I'm saying esteemed with tongue placed firmly in my cheek, William Barr, a few weeks ago, uh, made some some reference to the winners writing history so he didn't have to worry about, you know, some idiotic decision he had made. But um, but it's not specific in, the, in that way uh, that the winners write history. It's more that these power structures, these ways of life have a tendency to present themselves in ways um, that makes these alternative stories harder to take seriously. All right, those societies that did emerge on the traditional civilizational model were the first to write, for instance. And this is a really big deal because since they were the first to write, uh, you know, the, the, the early civilizations of Mesopotamia and Egypt and, and China and this sort of thing, because they're the first to write, they got to present themselves in history. Uh, they got to write their own, their own stories. And not only did they get to write their own stories, but they also got to present their rivals to later historians. And so virtually every uh, civilization that emerged and wrote about themselves would then present themselves in certain terms, but also present those outside the boundaries of their civilization uh, as well. And in virtually every civilization you can find, they're going to present some group of outsiders um, as some form of barbarian. Obviously, not everybody uses the same term, but the concept is used all across the world from West Africa to China, certainly to Mesopotamia, to the Americas. There's always some barbarian group on the outskirts of the state, of the society, of the civilization that should be feared as some kind of lesser version of the civilization itself. The quote I began with is from an historian, in fact, named James Scott. Uh, And James Scott makes the case that the term barbarian actually is not even a cultural category. Rather, it's a political category applied to those outside the administration of the state. And this is particularly true 
when those who live outside those those boundaries followed a different way of life from those within, it was much easier to simply present them as this barbaric group of savages. And again, you can find just countless examples of outside groups being presented in these ways, uh, sometimes as, you know, just worse versions of those within the society. In other cases, almost as subhumans uh, who simply lack the intelligence to even survive uh, like those in the bounds of civilization. And not being able to write in many cases, these quote-unquote barbarian groups couldn't present themselves to future historians and thus were rarely presented sympathetically, even when they were presented at all. I mean, obviously, there's got to be just innumerable groups uh, that have survived and, and been present throughout history that never show up in, in our histories, never show up in our textbooks. They've been almost entirely erased from our understanding of the past. And so the winners of history then are then those who ruled over particular types of societies, especially those that built on a scale and with materials that could be uncovered by modern archaeologists, and those who could write in languages that could be read by later historians. And what were these societies of these non-states barbarians like? According once again to James Scott, and he's now describing specifically some of these uh, early groups in southern Mesopotamia, he says, quote, they were based in what are now called common property resources, free living plants, animals, and aquatic creatures to which the entire community had access. There was no single dominant resource that could be monopolized or controlled from the center, let alone easily taxed. Subsistence in these zones was so diverse, variable, and dependent on such a multitude of tempos as to defy any simple central accounting. Unlike the earliest early states, no central authority could monopolize and therefore ration access to arable land, grain, or irrigation water. There was therefore little evidence of any hierarchy in such communities. A culture might well develop in such areas, but the likelihood was small that such an intricate web of relatively egalitarian settlements would throw up great chiefs or kingdoms, let alone dynasties. So again, sounds pretty awful, right? Resources available to everybody, no private property, no <laughs> leaders, uh, egalitarian structures. This is what existed as the counter to these, these great states that would rise up from about the fourth millennium or so. All the things your mother warned you about. Exactly, right? Hey, you know what? It, it, well, it occurs to me, if I can throw in, is as you're describing these these, these state, let me call them uh, sort of a, a official state uh, spaces, you know, that, that is defined by the state, whether it be geographical, what have you. You know, I do a bit of, of sketching from time to time, and I remember taking a portrait class once, and they talked about, instead of just drawing the outlines of the portrait you're doing, you reference the negative space. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and it occurs to me that as you talk about, you know, these states, that in effect what they create is a negative space. And, and I mean that, in, again, in the artistic sense or maybe in a yeah. photographic sense, um, much the way a, a statue creates a negative space. In other words, the, the object of the statue draws attention to its physical form, just as the state draws attention to its, in effect, physical form. But in so doing, then defines automatically, in effect, that negative space. And so it seems like what you know, you're suggesting is that we need to search that negative space to find these very vital alternative histories. We do, and, and you know, to a certain extent, we have those stories out there because the, the quote-unquote civilizations do describe them. What we got to do better, though, is not take those descriptions quite at face value. We got to dig into them and, and understand, well, why are they being, being presented in this way? 
by continually writing about, quote, those who have ever been victorious, as, as Wally Benjamin said. And I'm just calling him Wally Benjamin now. Is that okay? I, I think we, our relationship has arrived at that point. Yeah. Once he's on your T-shirt, you can call him whatever you want, right? Uh, mm. What we've done, though, is we privilege particular societal models while essentially vilifying others, right? We see barbarians, right? That obviously uh, evokes a kind of feeling when you hear about barbarians or savages or whatever the case may be. And by the way, this is not this is not just immaterial because when I talk about early civilizations, early societies, the beginnings of agriculture with my students, there very much is a bias towards the agricultural societies. Um, I have them write a little bit about kind of forging societies versus agriculturalist and they are very much sympathetic to the the big states and far less sympathetic to to the foragers and that's an effect of this way we we've done history right it's also just the fact of you know we we as we identify with those people who are most like us i guess but it 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 does influence the way we think about the past we have this this then dichotomy between the privileging of particular societal models and the vilifying of others and that's true when we talk about the distant past, you know, the beginnings of agriculture, the beginning of civilizations. But it continues to be true in the way we, we present those societies who become integrated into the capitalist global economy over the past 500 years versus those who remained outside that system or even define themselves in anti-capitalist terms. Right? There's very little space for these kind of groups in our modern histories as well. And they are quickly mentioned and put away or they're, they're mentioned as, as failures or they're mentioned as uh, as enemies, and then we simply don't have to talk about them any longer. You know, and I would again, I would only throw in. I think you're right on 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 the mark there, Josh. Because, and if I stick with my analogy for a second of the negative space of history, you know, the problem with it, defining it as a negative space is it's always defined in reference to that positive space. That is, that more distinct image. So even if you do recognize it. It's always defined in relation to that dominant model, and it's usually not a flattering either comparison or um, or reference. You're you're right, and you know I think a big part of that is because the idea of progress is so ingrained in the way we talk about this stuff. And as part of that idea of progress, there's this idea that you should go through these steps as as history goes on. Society should go through these steps. And, you know, when you get to the stage of capitalism, and I, I don't mean to be Marxist at this point, but it just so happens that I'm giving this Marxist analysis. Uh, when you get to this, Yeah, yeah. When, when you get to this, uh, you know, this kind of capital stage, the capital stage is seen as higher than the stage before, right? And so those who are not following that path, those who are doing certain uh, different things are defined not by what they are, by, but by what they're not, right? That they haven't achieved this thing. Yes. Um, and this is a big deal, you know, in, in modern times because... For a lot of the societies that are um, finding themselves subject to these kind of modern capitalist systems, they come to see their own societies in that way as well, that they have failed in some way because they didn't achieve this, this, this capitalist development. And therefore, until they do, they will continue to be failures. I mean, that's really a big part of the history of modern Japan is that they came to see themselves as failing because they didn't follow the same path as, as England, basically. So this stuff has, has real importance. It's not just you know, stuff we as historians can talk about. It literally determines how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, how we think about the present, how we think about the past. But I think it's also important because when we uh, kind of shuffle these alternative models to the sidelines, or, or even worse, we just put them into the dustbin, what it tends to do is it limits our own imaginations, right? And this is something we're seeing a lot right now because, you know, like in the example of Seattle, 
where these group of protesters ultimately carved out and have begun to operate this alternative space. The reason they're able to do that is because their imaginations were broad enough to say, we don't need to just do things as we've always done things, that there's alternate ways of doing things. And so I think it seems like we're at a moment now where these alternative spaces, these alternative models are are out there to a greater degree than they've been. And, and, and I think more and more you're seeing people say, reform's not enough any longer, right? We gotta reimagine entirely how contemporary societies can function. And for that reason, I think it's really important for us as historians to offer these different models, to expand the imagination of those who we teach and who read uh, our books and who listen to our podcast, so they can see that there has always been alternatives, but history has not always had space to discuss those alternatives. Yeah, very, very well done. And we're going to follow up here now with some some examples that I think will be compelling. But, you know, you put it really well. And I, I think, you know, our friend uh, Friedrich Nietzsche would have applauded this because, you know, among other things, it, we just get lazy, you know, when we keep referencing those same, you know, dominant uh, narratives. And, and we tend to, as I said earlier, you know, end up, as he said, deifying the past. And so as we bridge in, let me just leave us with a quote from Nietzsche. He says, to be sure we need history, but we need it in a manner different from the way in which the lazy bones, as he calls them, in the garden of knowledge use it. That is, we need it for life and action, not for a comfortable turning away from life and action or merely for glossing over the egotistical life and the cowardly bad act. We wish to use history only insofar as it serves the living. From El Barrio to Arecibo, Palante. From Marble Hill to the ghost of Emmett Till, Palante. To Juan Miguel Milagros Manuel, Palante. To all who came before we say, Palante. As we transition now to segment three, we want to now discuss some historical examples of these alternate social and political spaces. And as we do that, I want to keep in mind Nietzsche's admonition that, that Chris just read to us, uh, that we need to, quote, use history only insofar as it serves the living. And that's a really important thing to understand that, you know, we've talked about this many, many times before, but the past and our, our studies of the past ultimately have to serve the present. If they're going to be relevant at all, they have to say something about our present circumstances. And that's certainly something that we've tried to do throughout and will continue to do as we move on to this, this new segment. And in, in that regard, I want to make a point about a huge difference between the deep past or the deeper past and then this modern contemporary world we live in. And that is, as we talk about alternate spaces, there's simply less and less space for those sorts of things in our contemporary world. And just to give you a sense of that, in the year 1600, by one estimate, only about a third of the landmass on the planet was occupied by states. So two thirds of the landmass on the planet was occupied by various non-state actors. And, you know, ultimately, even the territory that was occupied by states, and as Chris is going to talk about in a moment, just because territory was claimed by a state didn't mean the state had the capacity to actually govern it. So even, you know, in that one third of the land masses occupied by the, by the state, there still is room there for these kind of alternate social and political spaces. And one of, the, I think, the biggest things that's going to happen as we transition into this modern world, into this contemporary world, is a lot of the landmass that had not been occupied gets filled in by states 
those states increasingly can govern their territories in more and more direct, more and more intrusive ways. And as that occurs, it becomes harder and harder to find any kind of space for an alternate to the dominant paradigm of social and political organization. So what that means is that the diverse set of societies that had existed you know, prior to 1600, for instance, begin to disappear. Then um, they're disappearing because the space in which they can operate are disappearing. So with that in mind, we do want to talk about some places where these kind of social formations, political formations, are able to find some space and operate outside, as I said a second ago, that dominant paradigm. Before I get into my example, though, uh, I'm going to talk about maroon societies in the Americas. And Chris is going to give it another example of, um, of, of New Mexico and the Hopi people. I do want to talk a little bit more about the, the Paris Commune. Chris mentioned this uh, in the previous seg segment. Uh, so the Paris Commune, I don't want to go too much in the details. It's not, not that vital to have all the details here. But the Paris Commune forms in March 1871. And the Paris Commune is only going to survive for a, a little, maybe a little bit more than a month. I think maybe about five weeks. In that time, the residents of Paris, uh, largely uh, dominated by, by the working class. It's one of the few times we see this in French revolutionary history which, by the way, is, is quite a long history at this point, uh, where the, the, the working class actually come to dominate their own movement. Traditionally, the working class had done the work of revolution and then the lawyers had taken over. But in this case, those who, quote unquote, governed Paris were part of, uh, uh, sorry, predominantly of the working class. And what they're trying to do in Paris is actually a little hard to determine because there is differences of opinion. Some wanted to create this kind of anarchist modeled society where the commune would be self-governing, where there would not be a specific leader, and that hopefully the rest of France, bit by bit, would, would um, take them up on that. And each city, each community would form their own commune, and they would be connected, but also would be essentially self-governing. Others within the Paris Commune had more of a kind of revolutionary socialist viewpoint. And in fact, that the flag of the Paris Commune was not the tricolor flag of France, which was now associated with imperialism, by the way, it was not a symbol of what they were they were about. They now adopted the red socialist flag. And I'm sure you've seen various versions of that flag. And their idea was this was a revolution, that they were literally reaching back to the French Revolution. Uh, some of them called themselves the, uh, the Neo-Jacobins, hearkening back to the revolutionary group in the 1789 revolution. And they had their own kind of socialist model for what, in this case, the nation would. So as opposed to the kind of anarchist view, with each community running their own affairs, this uh, socialist view was a socialist government governing France. And so while these are new visions, right, this anarchist vision, or this, uh, we can almost call it proto-anarchist vision, and then this, uh, this more socialist revolutionary vision, the thing that marks the Paris Commune, apart from some of the things we're going to be talking about as we go forward, is that the discussions, uh, the debates, the ideologies that are being presented are all parts of these ongoing debates in European history by this point, right? That the, the anarchism uh, of, of some segments of the Paris Commune was something that had been written about and talked about and discussed and debated for, for years by this point. The socialism certainly had been talked about, debated, uh, and, and uh, discussed for years as well. I mean, Marx is one of the, the people who writes about the Paris Commune, and so he's active and engaged in what's happening as well. And then even beyond that, um, although they are creating this, this Paris Commune, which would be whatever it was going to be, remember there's, there's debates about this, they're still operating within this idea of France as a nation. They're still operating within a European community. 
filled with other actors they have to think about. They're still part of France, even though they don't occupy the rest of France. And so even in the case of the Paris Commune, which is, is in, in some ways this amazing example of an alternate political and social space, one of the things that becomes clear even with just a cursory discussion or, or understanding of the Paris Commune is how tied into the dominant paradigm they really were, right? Now they were trying to push against it, but they still couldn't really escape the fact that they were taking part in these long-standing debates, these long-standing discussions, and of course we're doing it all within the context of national and European history. So as we move forward, then I, I want to give an example where we don't really have that same sense of kind of long-standing historical debates or ideologies um, or any real connection to a, a dominant paradigm. And that gets us into talking about the, the maroon communities of the Americas. To begin with, if you're not familiar with this, maroon is just a, a, a general term used to refer to escaped enslaved people. And different uh, parts of the Americas will use different terms for this. Uh, quilombos, I think, is the, the term that's used in Brazil. Um, in Spanish America, they often use the term palenques to refer to these uh, communities of escaped slaves. Basically, palenque means like a walled city, basically. And so there's different terms. I'm just going to use the term maroon uh, because it's, it's a general term that kind of, kind of describe all these situations. And what's so interesting about these maroon communities and there's several things, is that they form almost immediately upon the arrival of Europeans in the Americas. Um, we now know that, you know, on the ships of quote-unquote discovery, the ships that were first exploring the Americas from, um, from Europe, it was quite prevalent for there to be aboard those ships people of African descent. Um, in the case of Spain, many of these would have, would have been people they, they would call Moors. Uh, so these are Islamic Spaniards. Uh, they are referred to as black Right, so dark-skinned African-descended Spaniards, but who were Muslim, um, and they were present at the point of discovery, or quote-unquote discovery at least. Uh, you sent me the other day this uh, this piece about a, a, a pretty famous figure, actually Esteban, who was uh, a guy who took part in the exploration of, of Florida. Um, their ship was was uh, they, they shipwrecked, and a small group of Europeans and Esteban were stranded in Florida and ultimately made their way across. Uh, basically the, the entirety of uh, the south of the United States all the way back to Mexico, essentially by foot, or at least the Gulf of Mexico on foot. And, and Esteban was himself of African descent, of course, but also most likely, it's not known for sure, a Muslim as well. So there's this African presence right from the very, very beginning of exploration. And that African presence is quickly matched by the, the creation of independent communities of these escaped slaves. Almost literally the first ships of slaves, uh, of enslaved people that arrived in the Americas on Spanish ships, people would escape and go into the interior and try to set up their own communities. Um, so this was, was something that was, uh, you know, the state, Spain or Portugal, or later the French, the Dutch, um, and, and the English simply didn't seem to be able to put a, put a stop to. And this gets to what I was saying earlier about just the amount of space there was. In these colonial societies in which it was very, very hard to get Europeans to migrate because uh, Europeans tended to die pretty quickly when they came, especially the tropical Americas, um, where indigenous populations were dying very quickly because of the spread of disease, there was increasingly a lot of space to, to, for people to move into. And people of African descent, many of them directly from Africa, quickly found that wherever they were brought, they could find uh, a space to operate. 
Uh, and this happened again and again and again across the history of, of the Americas, beginning as early as the early 16th century and continuing right to the period of, of independence. In fact, one of the most uh, prominent groups of maroon communities are in the, the in interior of Jamaica. And those maroon communities existed as separate communities through the period of independence, 1962. And when independence came, they actually made agreements with the new national government that maintained some of their autonomy. And the reason why I think these maroon communities are so interesting is because they do offer this alternate model. Now, we think about the Americas, I think one of the things that, that stands out, and want, to be clear, the kind of post-exploration, the post-Columbian Americas, one of the things that I think people need to really think about more is that these societies, these colonial societies in the Americas are in their own way sort of alternate societies. They don't look like the societies that people had left in Europe as much as people maybe wanted to recreate Spanish culture, Spanish society, English, French, Dutch, or whatever, largely because of the prevalence of slavery and plantations, American societies were fundamentally different. But they still operated within this larger paradigm of power and capitalism and hierarchy and all these things that were, were brought over from, from Europe. These American colonial societies, and when I'm saying American here, I mean in the broadest sense, all the way from the tip of Argentina uh, through the northern reaches of Canada, that these were amongst the most exploitative societies in human history, just in terms of scale. When you take into account the uh, almost immediate enslavement and capture and massacre of indigenous people, when you take into account the very early importation of enslaved people, first from amongst the, um, the, the uh, defeated Moorish population of southern Spain, and then increasingly as the Portuguese get involved from the coast of, of West Africa. These are as I'm arguing here, almost incomparably exploitative in the context of, of world history. Um, and yet, when you look at these maroon communities, what you get is a, an alternative, a different way this could have occurred. And I want to talk about one in particular here, and that's a community called Esmeraldas. Esmeraldas is uh, on the Pacific coast of what's now Ecuador. And this community forms in the early 16th century, maybe the 1520s. And it forms when a slave ship carrying enslaved people from Panama uh, ultimately is supposed to go to Lima, uh, so 1530s rather, uh, ultimately to what becomes Lima in, in Peru. The ship crashes on the coast of, of again, what's now Ecuador, and the uh, enslaved people quickly move into the interior. And there they combine with local indigenous groups, uh, in many cases um, uh, Spaniards who are you know, not particularly on board with the colonial regime, or were, were criminals or whatever else, or were escaping the army, or whatever the case was, also joined this community. And Esmeraldas would operate for about 60, 70 years or so as an independent community made up of uh, largely people of African descent. And in this case, people directly from Africa, not just people born in the Americas of African descent. They were joined by indigenous people, as I noted. And they're gonna create this society which serves as such a, a, an alternative to what actually existed. Instead of the increasingly race-based and caste-based system of Spanish rule and English rule and French rule, in Esmeraldas, what you see is this multi-ethnic, multicultural uh, culture and society that comes into being. With a, if, if there was a ruling class, the ruling class was of African descent. And I, hopefully uh, Chris can post this on, uh, on our, our website, but there's this amazing portrait. In 1599, the, uh, the, the rulers of Esmeraldas decide it's time to make a deal with the Spanish. And so they send this delegation of, of three of the prominent 
individuals in the community to the city of Quito, where they essentially sign a deal where they now place themselves under Spanish rule. Um, and to mark this event, a great portrait was done. And this portrait was done, uh, again, getting into the, the, the complexity of the population of the Americas, the portrait was done probably by a, a native artist. And he paints in a very European style, these three individuals. And the three individuals are uh, the father who is portrayed as a king. We don't know if that's exactly how he would have been understood in Esmeraldas. Uh, and then his two sons. So the dad is in his, I think, uh, it lists his age. I think he's 57. His sons are uh, in their late teens, early 20s. And when you see this portrait, what you're going to see is these three individuals, each of whom are referred to as Don. So they're given this honorific, right? almost like Sir. Each of them has a Spanish name, Domingo, uh, Pedro, uh, and then the father's name. I'm blanking on right now, but another very Spanish name. And they're wearing in their noses and their ears gold jewelry, uh, very indigenous in style. They have those neck ruffs. As you might have seen those before, that, that style in Europe at that time, late 16th century, those big ruffs that went around their neck. They're wearing beautiful fabrics, uh, maybe from, uh, from India. That would have been in fashion in Spain, but certainly also amongst the elite in the Americas as well. And they're carrying spears. And it just speaks to this, this alternative system of, as I said, syncretic culture of uh, diversity as opposed to boundaries between ethnicities and the possibilities of what the Americas could have been if not for the exploitative systems set up by the Europeans from that point on. Well, you know, so that's a, that's a remarkable example, both because it's not uh, terribly well known, but because of its power as a, uh, you know, as an example of that kind of viable alternative space within larger or around uh, other larger state players, in that case, the Spanish Empire. And I, I think what I would say, Josh, you know, as I go into my bit here is that so the telling of that history becomes part of our own, you know, mental framework now in our in our, our contemporary world to understand not only the possibility of alternatives, but to see how uh, in the past, at least how they've managed to work. Uh, in other words, as Nietzsche says, you know, history is serving the living, how we tell the history itself and the stories we choose, including those kinds of alternative histories, if you will, either limit or open up, either close off or expand our own understanding of how what our alternatives are, you know, in our own time, say for social change or, or what have you. We were talking about statues earlier as, as well, and the example that that sort of feeds directly into the bit I'm going to do here comes from Albuquerque uh, in in New Mexico, a town, uh, in fact, earlier in my life where I used to live and have a lot of fondness for. Uh, it was in Albuquerque that gunfire broke out at a protest over a statue. In fact, somebody was, was injured and taken to the hospital. And the statue uh, concerning here was that of uh, a, a Spanish colonial administrator from, uh, you know, now a few centuries ago, Juan de Oñate, uh, who is remembered in history as one of the most despotic of the sort of conquistador colonial governors of Spanish America, a 16th century colonial governor of, of New Mexico, who, among other things, is remembered for having ordered uh, the, the feet to be cut off of uh, native uh, people who weren't, you know, uh, conforming to his, his rule. Um, 
And, you know, I would suggest that in this case, how and, and I understand now because I read this morning that the statue, in fact, Onyate's statue has been taken down or, or has otherwise been covered up or something that, um, you know, how how we choose to see that uh, issue in this case of, of a statue protest, how we choose to see it either, again, leads us back into a broader history that can give us, uh, you know, more options, more alternatives, as we're calling them for understanding how societies can work. Or contrarily, if, if you're part of the militia that showed up to protect that statue, how you're likely to see the history in those more traditional, more conservative and, and narrow terms. So yeah, I think, and as Nietzsche would understand, the way we tell the history has a lot to do with how we see our own lives. Now, look, just as we see in other places, you know, what's happening in Albuquerque is a battle over public spaces, as you pointed out, you know, but also over the living histories, therefore, that get represented in those spaces. And in, you know, most cases, what the what these protesters have been calling for are not just taking down statues, but as we've suggested, alternative histories. So, yeah, Josh, I'm going to focus my time here on one such alternative history that deserves far greater attention that is typically received, certainly in the telling of the U.S. national story. Uh, we'll call it an alternative history, although as the Hopi Indian storyteller and artist Edward Kaboti would have it, it's an alter-native history. He, he spells it a uh, hyphenated, hmm. alter-native history. What do you think of that? Pretty clever. It's, it works. I mean, it's one of those things. It's maybe maybe something that works better in writing than in in uh, in speech, right? You can kind of see the see the. Pun yeah, I'm trying there. to give the inflection, you know, on the alter native history. But you know, this is a history that that both he and and now I'm talking about uh, that touches upon the cornerstones of our own broadcast here on history against the grain. The history we're proposing is a history uh, without the usual borders, uh, or at least with those borders reconfigured. It tells stories of diverse people. People not always featured in those national or imperial stories. Um, it's also a history that's hidden in plain sight in a, in a basic way, a history that is much, uh, therefore, to teach us about the problems of our, our own time. And if all that's not enough, Josh, it features an event uh, that represents a fight or a protest of another time, if you will, for another alternative space, as we define it on today's episode. Though unlike, say, Seattle... Uh, the event we'll reference here happened 340 years ago in a region we now know as the Four Corners region of the American Southwest. And that event is known to history as the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. Uh, and that revolt took place about 100 years before the American Revolution would in, in, a, in a different part of the North American continent, of course, as I say now in what is the Four Corners region, northern Arizona and New Mexico, uh, the very area which not coincidentally then is being contested in that Oñate statue uh, conflict in, in Albuquerque. In other words, it's seated right there in that region of North America where we're going to see this alternative history unfold. Uh, and so as an alternative or alternative history, if you prefer, you could say the Pueblo Revolt was a true American war of independence. 
It's just that it took place in a slightly different place in about 100 years before the one we commemorate with statues of Thomas Jefferson. So, yeah, let's look at the Pueblo Revolt a bit and the remarkable uh, alternative history that it shares. Now, in looking at the Pueblo Revolt and the people who carried it off, we are, as the historian Jesus de la Teja puts it, re-examining the non-English, non-English American colonial experience, giving the native populations uh, roles as actors rather than mere victims or as obstacles to progress. And so I want to point out that the simple fact of what I'm calling here simultaneity, uh, that is two things, if you will, uh, happening at once, maybe in different places historically, reveals the limitations, once again, of a strictly bordered national history. Uh, that is history going on at the same time, just in a different place, that the state, in this case the United States or the English colonies, uh, has not yet claimed and which therefore chronologically and geographically somehow doesn't fit that national story because it's perceived as somehow marginal to that story. That is literally, say, on the geographical margins or, or in some other way marginal, a lesser or separate or even uh, unconnected story. So that uh, otherwise, you know, we would say uh, it just doesn't really get in the textbooks much. But that's a shame because it's something like we'll see with the Playable Revolt. It's very much otherwise part and parcel of the same larger imperial context of empire building in North America. So if we shift those boundaries and we shift that central state player, suddenly the Pueblo Revolt has a lot to do, as we might guess, with the events recently in, in Albuquerque. It's almost like saying, Josh, that something which happens in your peripheral vision, let's say you being, in this case, the English colonies or later the United States, that because it's happening in your peripheral vision that somehow it's not really important or central to your being. And I got to tell you, as a rider of a street bike, motorcycle, if I don't pay attention to what's happening in my peripheral vision, I'm going to get T-boned. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it also just points out this how easy this really is, right? If something's in your peripheral vision, all you got to do is turn your head slightly to the right <laughs> or left, and you can see it pretty clearly. And so the fact that we haven't done that just suggests... Uh, you talk, you know, you quote Nietzsche. You talk about the lazy bones. Right. It's it's that that's the the true mark of laziness. That it's all right there, and and it just takes a little bit of effort to to see it straight head on. Yeah. Well, well said. Um, you know, and, and and if you don't, I mean, it, it creates a real problem because the Native American people who are at the center of this story of the Pueblo Revolt, they certainly don't see themselves or their history as peripheral to anyone, you know, just the opposite. Ask them, right? They'll tell you. Patiently, at least for an, in an academic sense, they've waited, you know, for the writing of their history into these textbooks, a history of which they're justifiably proud and well-informed and, and understand better, perhaps, than the writers of those textbooks, why they're so critical for our modern world. Uh, you could almost say of the Pueblo, modern Pueblo peoples, they've waited for everyone else's history to catch up with them. Because, uh, among other things, they are still here, still the living embodiments of their incredibly long and, and remarkable history. Um, so that's, that's, that's our focus now in this bit on alternative histories. And, and we're talking about those Pueblo peoples, as the Spanish called them, of that Four Corners region. Uh, the first group, it's worth noting, uh, of Spaniards, actually the first was the man you mentioned earlier, Esteban, 
uh, because according to the Hopi, the first Euro or non-native person they met was a, a black Muslim guy <laughs> who was Amazing. with a Spanish, a kind of lost Spanish battalion. But uh, the first better documented group arrival of Spaniards were part of Coronado's expedition looking for the famed El Dorado, you know, who in, in 1547 happened upon the Pueblos. And uh, no, this is, uh, if I, I meant to say 1540, um, this is 67 years before Jamestown is established, you know, farther to the east on the Atlantic coast. Um, now, this is not principally a story today about the Spanish conquistadors or the Spanish Empire. They're really the bit players in someone else's alternative history here. The native people from Coronado's emissaries, you know, first met. And who were they? Well, we'll let the Spanish describe them, you know, here in a second. They were they were the Pueblo peoples as the Spanish called them, Pueblo being the name for town or village, uh, members of a, uh, a seven-nation, basically loose-knit cultural and economic network uh, whose footsteps spread across the Colorado Plateau of northern Arizona and northern New Mexico. Uh, on their terms, they were the people known as the Tiwa and the Tewa, the Toa, the Kiris, the Zuni, the Piros and the Tom Piros and the folks we're going to spend most of the time talking about today, finally, the Hopi. And it is the Hopi then whose own central history here becomes now part of the larger alternative history we want to uh, suggest. And you, I, you talk about alternative spaces, you know, you think of that geography, that high desert, you know, 6,000 feet in elevation and higher massive sandstone cliff mesas of northern Arizona in the, in the Colorado Plateau. Uh, and though from, I guess, from an uninformed standpoint, you know, it might be tempting to think of this landscape because of its vastness, you know, and its strictly formidable nature, uh, that therefore somehow it's it's devoid of, of real human history, at least until maybe John Ford Western show up, you know, in Hollywood Cowboys. But nothing could be further from, from the truth. So again, let's get back just to the Spanish account of the Pueblo people as they met them in the 1500s. Quote, they harvest much cotton. The houses are three stories, well planned. The inhabitants are great land tillers and diligent workers. Among them, it is considered a great vice to be intoxicated. Although for amusement, they have certain games and a race they run with great speed. That was the description of the Spanish who clearly were impressed, despite all their own ethnocentric judgments, you know, about the peoples, the Pueblo peoples, as they designate them of the Four Corners region. And truth be told, uh, you know, again, they had long, the Pueblo peoples had long fostered a complex exchange economy long before the Spanish arrived, centered around that Four Corners region, focused on the mining of precious stones, you know, especially turquoise, but also cotton textiles. And they built roads and trading towns and fostered an exchange that stressed all the way, uh, stretched all the way across the Sonora Desert of Mexico all the way to Mexico City and, and eastward to the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico and westward along the Colorado River to the Pacific Coast. So far from being isolated or land lost or something, the Pueblo peoples were integral to a very long running history that preceded the arrival of Europeans and reminds us 
uh, just how vital these stories really are. For the Hopi peoples of the Arizona mesas, uh, their space itself, this incredible landscape, was life-giving, life-preserving, and, and certainly sacred uh, for them just as it remains today. You know, maybe best known to us, perhaps, are those ceremonial spaces constructed by the Hopi and their ancestors, uh, known as kivas. And kivas have been described as, as congregational spaces uh, constructed by the Hopis and their ancestors and, and those who perceive for, for 2,000 years, you know, before the arrival of, of the Spanish. They were uh, large, often round, and, and subterranean spaces where sacred ceremonies in all seasons, uh, none more important than the call for rain, uh, could be carried out. And, you know, I, I, Josh, I was on a road trip. My wife and I were on a road trip a few years ago during the summer uh, to the Four Corners region. We went to Mesa Verde, which is a national park, actually, but the site of many of these remarkable Pueblo constructions. And, uh, you know, we were there and, 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 and roamed about the Mesa, you know, 8,000 feet high, 8,000 feet, a, a tabletop that gives you far views in, in every direction. And, and we were reminded at every turn that despite the monumentality of these mesas and even some of the adobe, um, you know, constructed uh, buildings and such that they created, there was an incredible intimacy to the experience as you wander through, you know, the mesa clay and sand and stone and water. Uh, they were used by women typically in the construction of the adobe bricks that were used, uh, you know, to build those Pueblo spaces, those fire pits, those living rooms, doorways, you know, windows, skylights, ladders, walkways, uh, the masonry construction. You could touch out, reach out and touch it with your hand of walls and niches and benches and uh, ventilators and floors and and deflectors and fire hearths and even sapapus. And if you don't know sapapus, that was the hole in the floor that connected the pre-existing uh, world, if you will, of, of the Hopi with the now present earthly world. And many of the homes had them. Foot drums, uh, anchor, loom anchor holes for spinning and all kinds of roofing. So when you walk through, you get a sense of the intimacy of people living here. You know, and as one Hopi elder uh, put it, we believe that everything has life, including what archaeologists now call ruins, like the ruins at Mesa Verde. The Hopi call footsteps, uh, the footsteps of their ancestors and see them as living spaces, as, as uh, the Hopi artist Edward Caboti puts it, as living spaces in the world now. And so, yeah, as he as Caboti says, all throughout the Colorado Plateau, you will find our footsteps. And I, that's a really lovely way, don't you think, of referring to it other than simply as ruins? There's less finality to it, right? That these are just things that used to be and now are gone. Uh, they're, they're remembrances as, as um, you know, I think he's trying to get across. Absolutely. They're, they're part of living history, right? Yeah, remembrances in a kind of cultural thread that endures, you know, to, to today. So, um, Look, these Pueblo societies had occupied the mesas of the Colorado Plateau for centuries before European arrival and had seen many generations and successive historical stages. It doesn't do to sort of lock them in amber as a single people, a timeless people. Many successive stages that have now, uh, many of them been, been mapped by archaeologists across a 2,500-year period. 
Um, the Hopi themselves are a kind of, of historically variegated uh, people who come to create a recognizable culture and cultural form and language and such. But before the Spanish ever showed up in 1540 to meet the living descendants of those ancestral Pueblo peoples, uh, a people the Spanish knew and as we know them today as the Hopi, you know, we have to consider that the, the enormity of this, this legacy uh, and why it deserves something more than that peripheral uh, peripheral uh, positioning. Uh, certainly the arrival of the Spanish set in motion many changes. And as one historian put it, trouble lay on the horizon. And we're going to get back to that with the Pueblo Revolt. But, you know, before we do, let me just say one more time, we have to draw this history wide open to take it out of the negative space that I was talking about earlier in the podcast and draw it into the light a story that would otherwise occupy only the periphery of the U.S. national story. You know, the Hopis themselves remember their arrival on this earth as being brought into the light, the light of history, you might say, an emergent story from the subterranean places um, below ground. Uh, they see it as a migration story from a sacred kiva, a womb kiva, which according to tradition was located in the Grand Canyon, not surprisingly, that great fissure in the earth near the confluence of the Colorado and Little Colorado uh, rivers. And so it's this sacred space that the Hopi themselves point to as, as part of their, uh, their own origin stories. Uh, and that through a process of migration over a long period of time, they had come to settle on this elevated plain, this uh, in uh, the Arizona Mesa, 6,000 feet above sea level in the area we know as northeastern Arizona, near the Four Corners region. An area, by the way, annexed by the United States, but not until the mid-1800s, right? So uh, look, if we want to peel off the layers of America's national story, you know, before that it was claimed by Mexico following Mexico's independence from Spain, and, and before that it was claimed by Spain as part of its empire. But we have to keep in mind that the longest tenure in human history of the Mesa belonged to the native peoples themselves, just as today the Hopis still live there through all the many political, cultural, and even military conquests. As, that again, the Hopi storyteller and artist Edward Capote says, in, in the U.S. history textbooks, for example, you know, it's always pointed out that Major Powell was the first to travel the Colorado River uh, and to map it and to record its, its landscape. But the Hopi will tell you that their ancestors had done that 1,200 years ago. And so the Mesa's still a place, an alternative space, you might say, uh, revered by the Hopis as their sacred home. And, and it is a what historians call a sacralized landscape, a landscape bounded by sacred shrines and, and, and what the Hopis considered the four sacred mountains that bound the mesas. Uh, one of their villages, you can look this up, Josh, on, on the Google Maps or, or Wikipedia, called Old Oribi. Uh, Old Oribi, O-R-A-I-B-I, uh, the site of one of the Pueblos uh, on the third mesa in, in northern Arizona, is one of the four original Hopi villages and one of the oldest continuously inhabited villages within the territory of the United States, going back now a thousand years. Uh, and it was in the 1450s, of course, uh, 1540s, excuse me, uh, 1540s, that the Spanish arrival of that village uh, recorded it as having upwards of uh, between 1,500 and 3,000 residents. That was at the time of the Spanish arrival. 
So, gosh, you know, when we as Americans sometimes travel to Europe and we visit medieval towns and we're struck and we say, gee, in California or in the West, there's nothing older than maybe 100, 150 years back to the gold rush. Boy, how wrong we are. But that's the myopia, right, of the national story, because that's so misleading when you consider a place like old Oribe. But but even to cast it in those terms is misleading because it bends the identity of the Hopi to the needs of the U.S. national story and the U.S. political geography. The Hopi people, we might say, are residents of their own place, living on their own terms. I mean, now officially they are a Hopi tribe, a sovereign nation within the United States that has government-to-government relations with U.S. federal government. And certainly their tribal reservation lands have been circumscribed in northern Arizona, about a quarter of what they claimed originally, according to their sacred markers, and and now... um, completely surrounded in in political terms, geographical terms, by the larger Navajo nation. So that process of encircling of space has its counterpart in the telling, certainly of the U.S. national story, where the Hopi history gets minimized and obscured and viewed only through that single lens of the national U.S. story because that national story has not finally reached the mesas, let's say, until that middle part of the 1800s. But... uh, You know, as I'm suggesting, a much bigger history here outside that encirclement, you know, by the time it happens in in the U.S. history, is it more than 800 years old, let's say, of ancestral Pueblo history on those mesas? Certainly uh, an early uh, and even ancient agricultural history, you know, agricultural practices dating back to at least uh, 3,500 BCE and uh, the earliest identifiably Hopi artifacts come clocking in around 400 BCE. So yeah, uh, a long history. The Hopi, a people of clans, you know, the snake clan, the bear clan, the bamboo clan, the water clan, etc. Each with its own ceremonial responsibility for balance of life and land and and what is, after all, a very challenging, arid, high desert environment. And so they see their histories around the 12th century uh, CE, that is to say about 300 plus years before the Spanish arrival, as moving toward the familiar sedentary or Pueblo lifestyle with the familiar construction of two and three story homes and uh, agricultural cultivation. Uh, 300 years before Spanish arrival, it's estimated the population was 12,000 Hopis or more there on the mesas. And so by that time, you know, the peoples had long mastered agriculture, ceramic pottery, basket making, uh, textile production, adobe construction, rock art in the form of petroglyphs that are still visible today, the construction of kivas and their religious ceremonies of music and dance and storytelling, all of that was centuries established then before the arrival of the Spanish. Um, Beginning in the mid-1500s, though, uh, with the Spanish arrival, this contact, you know, we've said before, quoting Marx, it must have felt like uh, an Alp had fallen on the Hopis uh, as the Spanish and particularly the Catholic religion now was used as a colonizing force. The Franciscan order of monks was brought in almost like a, uh, you know, a corollary to the armed advance of the Spanish conquistadors, a kind of uh, cultural uh, conquest, you might say, beginning with their religious instruction, essentially at the barrel of a gun, 
to build their Catholic churches and enforcing uh, labor among the Pueblo people, the Hopi people, uh, as a form of tributary payment of taxation. You know, scholars uh, disagree, Josh, as to the degree of receptiveness on the part of the Hopi, though it's pretty clear, like in the words of Ed Caboti, uh, we were under the Inquisition of Spain, he says, for 80 years. So an extension of that Spanish imperial and religiously imperial conquest. And so the man whose statue is contested in Albuquerque now, Inyate, again, was the colonial governor, notorious in history uh, during this period. In fact, the cutting off of Fida reminds me, Josh, of the, the statues of King Leopold in Belgium, because it was Leopold who, you know, oversaw the uh, conquest of, of the Congo and whose private or army uh, was directed to cut off the hands of native African people. It's a really important link because what's interesting about both of them is they really demonstrate just how political this stuff is. Because Leopold was a was a disgrace in his own time. You know, even at the maybe the height of European imperialism and uh, and and subjugation of peoples, Leopold, although he was lauded for a time for his humanitarian efforts, was ultimately turned into this great villain who was kind of making alive all these ideas of European imperialism being about bringing progress and civilization to people. So he was he was a villain in his own time. And Uñate, the same thing. He was arrested by Spanish authorities. I, I mentioned a bit ago how exploitative these societies were, but even for the Spanish authorities, Uñate went too far and was literally arrested for being too brutal in his subjugation of, of peoples of, of these, these regions. It really speaks to the great irony, doesn't it, uh, in these two cases of statues dedicated to what we might call literal butchers. <laughs> And, and known butchers. It wasn't like, you know, some right. of these figures where we, we kind of, oh, we figured out in their stories they were doing these bad things. No, people at the time understood how horrific they were. And by the way, we could throw Columbus in there as well. Another guy who was yeah. thrown in prison for uh, mismanagement and brutality right. in, his, uh, in his rule over um, Hispaniola. Well, okay. So after several decades of, of uh, Spanish imperial uh, oppression there among the Pueblos, including the, the Mesa Pueblos of the Hopi in northern Arizona, uh, things came to a head in the 1670s. And I'm really skipping over, you know, the catalog of horrors that you see, particularly with the, uh, the near enslavement of native laborers who were um, required to do extraordinary amounts of work on behalf of building Spanish uh, Catholic churches, for example, traveling in some cases, you know, 50, 100 miles to re retrieve timbers that they could use as cross beams in the Spanish mission buildings and that kind of thing. And they, uh, the punishment, uh, the, I mean, Edward Cabote is absolutely right, the kind of Inquisition style punishment of, of those who would not conform. You know, a big thing was always for the Franciscans to try to stop in some measure the native um, dances, particularly the Kachina dances that were a ceremonial but but deeply religious uh, calls for things like rain, you know, and so stopping the rain dances and that kind of thing because they were considered idolatrous and whatnot. Well, okay, in 1675, the Spanish decided to punish the Kachina um, uh, dancers uh, and, and and actually did, executed three uh, in the capital there in Santa Fe in northern New Mexico. You know, Ed Cabote points out how we see Santa Fe today as this kind of art town, a bohemian colony and whatnot, uh, which it is, um, at least according to the Chamber of Commerce. But, you know, if we peeled back those layers, you would see that Santa Fe was used as a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of blood ground 
uh, for execution and punishment. The three Kachina dancers uh, not only executed in 1675, but also the flogging, the public flogging of 43 others for crimes of, quote, sorcery and sedition under the auspices of the ruling Catholic power, including some prominent leaders, by the way, among the Pueblos. So uh, what this does is it sets in motion what becomes the Pueblo Revolt following the execution in Santa Fe of a Pueblo medicine man uh, by the Spanish. Another Pueblo native by the name of Pope takes retreat northward into the town of Taos, you know, what is now a kind of ski resort town of northern New Mexico, was one of the Pueblo towns where he began planning what came to be the Pueblo Revolt. And it's fascinating. Again, we're only touching on some of the details here, but uh, Pope sent out runners with beaded ropes uh, to all the Pueblo villages across New Mexico and the Colorado Plateau. I mean, it was some, you know, uh, 100, 200, 300 miles distant. And through a system of relay running, uh, these ropes would be delivered uh, to the village leaders of the Pueblos. And, and, the, and they were essentially uh, coordinating the time of, of decision where each day you would untie one of the knots in the rope. And when you came to the last knot, that was the day of action as instructed by Pope's runners. When the last knot was untied, a simultaneous attack was to occur. Uh, and all of this made more momentous, by the way, um, from the fact that the, the region was suffering from um, a worse than usual drought and low, low rainfall. And the Spanish had therefore doubled down on their effort to prevent the Katsina dancers from uh, calling for rain. And so these, these forces are conspiring in August of 1680 when the last knot was undone. And after a week, and I, I'm only sorry I can't do greater justice to the extraordinary uh, nature of this, but after a week of coordinated attack, the Spanish, to put it simply, were defeated by the Pueblo fighters, we might call freedom fighters, uh, or maybe patriots, who expel uh, in the Pueblo revol revolt, essentially the entire architecture of Spanish imperial rule, some 422 Spanish uh, subjects that are, uh, were killed or, or taken captive. They included Catholic priests, but also soldiers and administrators, uh, with another uh, 2,000 left to live, but, but otherwise ordered expelled from the Pueblo region. Many of the Spanish Catholic mission buildings themselves were either converted or dismantled and their component parts used in, in new Pueblo construction. And for uh, 12 years, at least, while the Spanish plotted to, to somehow try to retake or regain control of Santa Fe and some other uh, Pueblo areas, uh, it's worth noting, and sometimes it's viewed as a blood, bloodless reconquest, but it was anything but that because the Pueblo peoples defended to their best ability from the return of the Spanish. And, uh, and after uh, a counterattack uh, on one of the mesas, the Antelope Mesa in northern Arizona, when the Spanish had attempted years later to come back in 1700, a counterattack at uh, Abatovi, uh, one of the principal pueblos on Antelope Mesa, where a Catholic church was garrisoned by the Spanish. Uh, basically, uh, the fighters uh, completely routed uh, those Spaniards, drove them out again from the Mesa, and thus successfully ended the Spanish presence to this day on the Mesa. According to one uh, scholar, James F. Brooks, by the end of August, no living representatives of the Spanish Empire and its Catholic faith walked Antelope Mesa, and to no significant extent have they ever since, as Ed Cabote put it, no significant European presence in northern Arizona for the next 200 years 
uh, until the annexing of Arizona essentially by the United States. So uh, look, the limitations of defining American history in terms of the national space, those areas recognized in their histories discussed only when they become part of the political boundaries of the nation, that is as a geographical claim of the United States, means that we're not only leaving out of the national story what was happening in an area for 10 centuries uh, before it became part of the familiar logo map of the U.S., but also therefore are we tacitly burying even the more recent history, such as that as the, of the Pueblo revolt and the subsequent independence or autonomous self-government of the, of the Hopi people uh, right down to the time of, of U.S. arrival, basically. But in, in some ways, still today, following the Pueblo revolt, the Spanish never returned to the Hopi territory in any significant way. And as a direct result, the Hopi culture today is distinct, even from other Pueblo cultures, for not including any European or Christian elements in their ceremonies, which continue to be performed much the same as they have been for hundreds and hundreds of years. As one Hopi elder put it, so we could become white people, the Spanish and later the Anglos came, but that wasn't our destiny. And, and today over 100 Pueblos are still occupied, uh, over 19,000 Hopi live in the United States, the larger United States. Twelve villages of Hopi are, are part of that reservation now that's been completely encircled by the Navajo. And look, let's not kid ourselves, this autonomous space. They've had it tough, you know, living under the imperial sway of the Spanish and now the U.S. Many of the challenges common to other Native peoples, you know, good jobs, clean water, protecting cultural integrity, jurisdictional issues. You know, the federal government provides countless millions in aid to foreign nations for things like infrastructure and clean water, but virtually nothing to the Hopi. And if that wasn't bad enough, strip mining, you know, on reservation lands in the 19th and nearby lands in the 70s, the Navajo reservation, strip mining for coal, you know, uh, has um, fouled the water and uh, with the, you know, the loss of a lot of the coal powered Plants. The one coal-powered plant in, in Arizona has essentially uh, been sh uh, shut down. They've, the Hopi, for their part, have, have rejected the, the uh, temptation toward gaming and, and casinos and, and still, as their ancestors did, strive to find that land-life balance through song and prayer and fasts and meditation. Uh, you know, the word Hopi means loosely translated peace and humility and gentleness. And so, yeah, the Hopi remain today a people who fought to keep their identity, to keep their autonomous space alive. And, and you know, if you'll indulge me, Josh, it was during my summer, tip, uh, summer trip now a few years ago uh, through that whole region uh, that I wrote uh, in my journal. And it just seems too good, to, not because of the quality of the writing, because of its application of what we're talking about. You know, today, as we went through the Capitol Reef region, the National Park in southern Utah, you know, let me just read from this journal entry I put down. Here is a place of pastel reds, oranges, pinks, purples, and pearl where ancestral peoples farmed corn, beans, and squash and narrated their visions and petroglyphs, animals, handprints, and figures just as their cousins did at Mesa Verde. I was living in Ogden, Utah, when Bill Clinton declared the whole area a national park and how that elicited complaints from state officials and stiff-necked ranchers. But it was the right call. This place, this canyon-rimmed landscape is a treasure 
to be loved and admired by all in a world so shallow, our own modern world, always so near the surface with obvious display. Capital Reef offers layers of coded meaning and revelatory beauty where rock and water and wildflower and cactus flower and humanity's past and present all reflect and refract through a prism of artist's light. Uh, more even uh, intimate, I think, than, than Mesa Verde. Capital Reef reveals its beauty up close with petroglyphs and wildflowers. Ancestral Pueblo peoples were here as well, a culture that engineered the landscape to meet their needs, both quotidian and cosmic. No need to mythologize them. They lived here for a thousand years in various guises before whites discovered the place. But what they accomplished with trade, farming, art, culture, and engineering merits them a rightful place in the histories of people. An extraordinary record of accomplishment with its own meta-narrative that is too often overlooked in the park ranger tour guide recitation of physical and artifactual narratives. Yeah, the big story of the ancestral Pueblo people remains to be found. That really makes me think back to, to what I was talking about right at the beginning, you know, describing these early societies in southern Mesopotamia. And as I described those, uh, you know, their way of life, it was a very different way that we, we tend to think of, quote unquote, civilization. What, you know, the, this kind of dominant narrative of, you know, the civilization is good and the alternate is bad. And, you know, when you hear about the Pueblo people, when you hear about, uh, you know, these southern Mesopotamians 6,000 to 8,000 years ago, there's nothing horrific about this kind of non-civilizational way of life in this, at mm -hmm. least the dominant version of what civilization is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we don't want to idealize any way of life, right. but it is important to to kind of pull out from history these examples of a different way of being than than one that has become so dominant in our world today. And if if we can do enough of this, if we can pull out enough of these histories, if we can make them a bigger part of, of just the general uh, understanding that people have of, of how humans have, have lived and prospered and and survived across human history, maybe it will have the effect of broadening our imaginations and enlarging the possibilities of what we are and what we can be. Very well said, my friend. Uh, it's a history for the living. This has been History Against the Grain, and we will see you guys again, or talk to you guys at least, next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you pay